Thanks for tuning in to Jin and Tantra. In this episode, we continue the exploration on the archetypes, and specifically those of the trickster, the magician, the innocent, the warrior, the martyr. We also discuss motivating causes and the intoxicating features of some of the archetypes. We also discuss Carol Pearson's book on the archetypes, The Hero Within. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Jen and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes Tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, Shamanism, Chinese medicineism, <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by, and blends them into a tall, crisp, cool cocktail. Your spirit has been longing for. I want you to get together. Now, isn't that refreshing? I want you to get together. Hey, Belgian tears. Those of <clears throat> let's do that again, man. Ads <laughs> roll. Forget it. Is that, that's it. That's it. We accept okay. any and all mistakes. It's all perfect. Hey, fellow G&Tears, those of us who like our spirituality with a twist. Yeah, that's entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I got like the I got like the Tom Waits voice going this semester. I know what's going on with me. I don't I'm even know who that is. Though, Eric. Who is that? Tom Waits. Oh, he's a he's a great songwriter, singer, trippy motherfucker. <laughs> okay, Just, all right, there we go. Give a search. Give a search. I'll send you. I'll send you some of the good stuff to listen to. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's a good songwriter, and he has this really raspy voice like this. All right. More messed up than mine. But I have been noticing it, you know, <clears throat> I feel bad in the podcasting, like, like uh, it's a little bit, <laughs> but okay, I'm playing her, you know, playing her. So, um, all right, so uh, we were going to talk in this whole bit now about Carl Jung and polyamory. Fascinating, mm. right? Mm. And uh, I was thinking about this, a, you know, kind of deep beforehand. I think if you don't understand this part of Jung, and a lot of people like Carl Jung and they want to understand him, I don't think you get him unless you understand this part of who he is. So uh, as per my interest in this, I'm also researching away. So it was one of the special nights we were talking pre-show about this um, before we put the mics on. On Tuesday, it's one of the special days on the Buddhist calendar where you kind of, kind of the Buddhist goddess energy was last Tuesday. And uh, so then afterwards, I was up kind of late because I did my special meditations for the for the month on that day. And then um, I just like searched something about Jung and love. And then this book popped up that's called Jung in Love. So I ordered the thing on its way. Uh, now that I'm being a responsible Instagram poster. Ooh, I did one post. Not that, but that's <laughs> responsible. One, I did one because I felt so bad in front of Daniel. <clears throat> that I was like, I have to do a post. All right, so audience, uh, make sure to go on the Instagram, Gin and Tantra, and give it a like so that Eric can feel good about his efforts. <laughs> I'm not going to feel good about my efforts because they were crappy, no matter what. They well, were bad. But you tried. That's what my matters. daughter looked at it immediately. And she was like, well, that's a crappy post. <laughs> that photo is too blurry, and it is. It sucks. I'll have to pull it down again and repost it better. <laughs> Whatever. But in any case, um, I was looking, yeah, I was, I was looking at this Jung and Love. And uh, I am going to do a little research on this thing. And we'll talk about the Jung and the Pali thing. And, you know, like, uh, I'm fascinated. Hopefully other people are fascinated. You'll understand more about Jung. You'll understand more about Pali. But we wanted to kind of give a deep context for Jung so you can understand why he made these choices, which is what we're trying to do in this little series of relationship episodes that we've been throwing up here over the whatever it's been, month and some change or something. Yeah. Yep. And because, um, you know, this is important, right? If you're going to live a life and try to like psycho-spiritually improve yourself, this is going to really have a huge impact on who you are. Keep making that case, but it's a pretty obvious case. Anyways, I don't think you can understand Jung unless you understand his poly. I don't, and it's good to understand why Jung chose to be poly. Mm. But we wanted to give a background on Jung so it would make sense. And this fucking Jung, <laughs> the minute you start talking about him, you can never fucking stop talking about the guy. He says so much shit <laughs> that the episodes go longer and longer and longer. He's like, okay, let's explain about Jung. And you realize, okay, 45 minutes has gone by and we still haven't fucking finished this. So we're still on Jung. Still there. 
is the upshot of this. We, you can't, you can't, it's like the Al, what is it, the um, Al Pacino uh, mob thing. Every time they try to pull, I try to get out, they pull me back in or something. Every time you think you're done, he pulls you, Jung pulls you back in. Well, you know what they say, Eric, Jung never gets old. It doesn't. <laughs> it's a pun. Oh my gosh. Of the classic G&T puns. Of That's which we right. don't have many, but so that went straight to the top of the list. That one's at the top. Young never gets old and shamanic as fuck. Shamanic as fuck. And the Shengasm. Ooh, we're oh, slowly, that one. Doing. We're slowly getting our catchphrases. We are, we're building it up. Very slowly over a three-year period. Very built one one a year. <laughs> Not every year. <laughs> That's a recipe for success in podcasting. That's it for sure. A slow burn. Very slow. <laughs> really slow burn really slow climb to the top but you know in that note podcast but you know um we you know we say it at the end but i just want to say it now in the beginning for everybody who you know listens to you know our work and everything else like this uh we appreciate it you know whether this is your first or second or third or hundredth or whatever you know um we do enjoy doing this you know hopefully everybody can tell and um it's a labor of love for sure. And so, you know, for people whom it touches and has benefit to, um, you know, thanks for being a part. Definitely. I feel like it's kind of um, trying to build up like a modern approach to like spiritual, like the spiritual path or something. Yeah. You know, to try to make it real for now. That's yeah. the goal. Yeah. All right. So, at this point in our young conversation, we are talking about the archetypes. And maybe we would talk about our favorite archetypes or like our least favorite or whatever ones we want to talk about in the end, I suppose. But the whole idea in Jung is that he says, well, you got a, a conscious part of yourself. You got a part of yourself that's a personal unconscious, all the stored memories and experiences of your life. And those ones that influence you behind the scenes that maybe you don't even notice, right? And maybe things that are being repressed and that kind of stuff. And then you have underneath all of that, Jung says, you have this massive collective unconscious thing, which is the, the inheritance of all humanity. And it's all sort of like the fundamental foundational ideas of how human beings tend to think hmm. is all in this big collection underneath everything. <clears throat> so that's the idea. You know, so the next part in Jung, when you talk about him is the go to go and say, okay, so if there's all these fundamental ideas, what are what are they? What are some of them? And what are they like? And maybe like, how would you even know they're there or something? So I don't know how you feel about this, Daniel, but for me, when I first read him, I was like, okay, I guess that's cool. I kind of shrugged my shoulders. I don't know if I mm. felt, I liked it. I thought it was interesting, but I don't know if it made a hell of a lot of sense to me. How, how was it for you? I well, I mean, when you find him. I, you know, so I first found him in uh, probably my sophomore year of high school, junior year of high school. Wow. Okay. And so I, you know, which is early because that means at least to me, the, the, for me, it's like, you'll get something and then that thing will probably come around again and then probably come around again. And the, it's rare, at least in my life, the, the first time I get it, am I like, oh, wow, I, I so want to dive into that. You know, it's kind of like, that's interesting, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like we talked about last time, that the person who introduced him to me was this very interesting dude who um, was struck by lightning twice and won, yeah. won a decent amount of money through the lottery, you know. <laughs> so like he was a real interesting dude, you know. And so he, and so he had a great affinity towards Carl Jung. So like, maybe it wasn't supposed that, that the module in high school wasn't supposed to be as long as it was, but we definitely went into, I remember going into depth with it. And it actually inspired me to have my first major in college as psychology. I was a, ma a business oh, okay. and psych major for like, I don't know, a year or so before I went to Iraq, that was my major. Gotcha. So I do have, you know, adult psychology it, and child psychology. I have a bunch of psych classes, you know. Probably like similar for me. I think I was, at, I mean, I'll talk about this more a little bit later on at some other point. I'm slightly saving it for these episodes, but like I was at UFC and I had a guy who knew someone who knew Jung and talked about Jung and, you know, again, made kind of an impression. So, yeah, I get that. Yeah. You know? mm -hmm. But I don't think that it it hit me until... 
late until I came at it different later. I have, to, I have to admit, I tried hard to understand him in the beginning, and I was a little bit like, okay, it's cool. Like, I definitely could see it was cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, I find this guy interesting, but mm-hmm. did it really make sense to me? Probably no. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I said last week when we were recording this stuff is I was going to try to tell a story of how this got to be real for me. But it really started to hit me, and, and it was when I started doing Zen. Mm. So I'll tell a tale maybe in a way that might be helpful for other folks too, where you can start to realize, you know, um, maybe how this stuff becomes more real. At least sure. this is how it became real for me, you know? So I was doing this Zen thing. And one of the things that happens in Zen is you get a lot more, what we would say in the Chinese medical world, yang. All of a sudden, the more lively yang parts of your personality come out pretty strong, right? And the reason why is, and we've talked about this in episodes where we did a little bit on Zen here and there, is because you're doing this um, uh, sort of internal yang building, breathing exercises and things. They're kind of like kundalini breathing, if you know, come from a yoga perspective or something like that. So you're doing something where you're building like the inner fire, you know, if you want to think about it from like a Buddhist tantra point of view. So Zen is really doing that, like in at least the style I was doing, they were doing these breathing exercises, they were building up a bunch of this fire. Yeah, I think if you if you're not in this world, it would be sort of like, maybe like turning up your adrenals or something. I don't know how you even describe it. It's something. That's acceptable. Yeah, you turn something up inside of you, you know, and it was really healthy for me because there were some more kind of like depressing, mopey parts of who I was. Right. (laughs) A little maudlin. And so it just kind of like eats those parts of your personality up. You know, if you jack up your, the more fiery, lively parts of yourself, it just eats away at those things. And it's kind of an amazing experience, even just from that point of view. Because people who hadn't seen me for years was like, were like, this is not the same person at all. Where's that mopey, moody guy who was like listening to the Smiths and all despondent? And mm. <laughs> that guy was gone. It wasn't really necessarily the Smiths when I was in high school. It was more like Pink Floyd. It's like perfect dude, moody, mopey music, mm-hmm. you know? So anyway, that was all gone. But then what happened was, different parts of my personality started to like kind of like explode out. And one of the things I realized happened from like a Jung perspective was all of a sudden I got like this trickstery part of me came out and I felt very mischievous (laughs) (laughs) and I wanted to break a bunch of rules and I wanted to like act out a little bit, you know? And on some level it felt really good because I, you know, I felt maybe more like I was being held back by things and I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm not going to be held back anymore. I remember specifically talking with some of the people in the Zen place where I was just like, okay, I'm, I'm mad. I'm frustrated. I'm holding myself back. Fuck it. I'm not doing this anymore. And they were like, be a little careful with that. <laughs> be a little careful. And I was like, okay, fuck it. I'm still feeling the same way. But what was strange was it took me a little bit to kind of get like, oh, this is a trickster vibe. Mm. And that, like I thought back on Jung and I thought, yeah, this is, this is an archetypal thing. I'm feeling this trickster archetype which is one of the like maybe slightly more obscure archetypes, right? Um, But Jung talks about these kinds of characters and you can kind of get it when you kind of imagine the characters. So you might think of like old school Bart Simpson or something like that. If you remember the old Simpson cartoons, he's a trickster, right? Mm -hmm. But kind of like a benign one. He's not going to cause any serious problems, Mm -hmm. right? Sometimes your tricksters can be like the hero of the story, right? So if you ever have like a smart assy hero, I think that was a big deal when I was growing up because there was a lot of smart ass heroic figures. If you can go way, way back in time to like old Bill Murray movies, he was always like a trickster character. Those movies are kind of old. You may or may not remember them. They probably don't even stand up that well over time. But, you know, he would play this like kind of smart assy trickster character. Mm-hmm. I heard uh, John Cleese uh, from Monty Python talking about the American sense of humor and how it's different than the British one. And he kind of said that Americans have, he didn't use the word trickster, but the Americans like a lot of like trickster humor or characters mm. who are a little trickstery, you know? Like way, way back, I can remember watching like reruns of the old show, MASH. Did you ever watch that at all, Daniel? When I was a child, my grandmother would watch it late at night. <laughs> but I, yeah, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't tell you anything about it other than- Yeah, well, the one guy who's the lead is kind of a trickstery guy. So, you know, there's okay. this whole thing of this American trickster thing. So sometimes- the trickster can be a hero, but sometimes the trickster can be a little bit dangerous. Mm. I always think of like Heath Ledger in The Joker. 
you know, playing the Joker in the the Dark Knight movies, right? Mm-hmm. Where he's definitely like a trickster character, and um, you can really feel like the trickster can be a little bit dangerous or something, right? The mm-hmm. trickster can go a little can go to like strange places, and you can kind of act out with it. Did you like that performance of Heath Ledger in that thing? Did you appreciate it? Of course, yeah. I mean, it's hard not to. Well, okay. Well, did you <laughs> did you react to the trickster of it? I love yeah. that archetype. So I was like, I love this guy's performance. This is perfect. Oh, it was perfect. Yeah. I mean, and it, yeah. I mean, not to go into deep of a too rap, too down, too deep into a rabbit hole, but it was probably the most, at least accurate from an archetypal perspective yeah, yeah. that, you know, more than the Jack Nicholson, more than the, the Jared, uh, Leto was like, Jared Leto more, you know, which is Jared Leto's Joker, which, you know, Joker as a trickster archetype in the comics does have various aspects of wanting to be more or less destructive, you know? Um, But it seemed like Heath Ledger didn't have anything other than desire to bring chaos. That's it. Yeah, and that's kind of the trickster vibe a little bit. It's kind of something like, there's a scene where, I usually use this example and I'm trying to like talk about this with people. There's a scene where he's already burnt off half the face of Harvey Dent and Harvey Dent's in the hospital. And then he goes on in there and he's dressed in like the nurse's uniform and he has the vote for Harvey Dent button. And, which is really darkly funny if you like trickster shit. And mm-hmm. I do. So you couldn't help but laugh a little bit. And then he does his speech, which explains the whole thing. You were a schemer. You had plans. And he just oh, blows them all away. And it's, I, we talked about it a little bit. It's kind of Dionysian in a weird way, but a dark kind of aspect of that. Like you think there's order, you think there's structure boom i just blew it all up you know and that's kind of a trickster vibe mm-hmm. but anyways for me i felt like i wasn't going to blow up like uh, uh the hospital like uh burning <laughs> that's good the, eric it's the face of Rahm Emanuel or anything like that it was our chicago mayor maybe or whoever it was but um um but i felt like okay this is cool i like this part of myself mm. like i like that this is part of me yet at the same time i can't let this shit like take over the show Mm-hmm. too much because it gets a little too wild mm-hmm. and and so Jung talks about this idea he calls inflation which I think is going to be a big subject matter maybe for me in this episode the idea that like if an archetype gets really strong for somebody it can kind of like almost like take over their whole personality and that ends up being not a healthy thing because you know the archetype is in a certain way running the show and your own individual conscious sense of who you are isn't isn't in charge in a certain sense anymore it's being so strongly influenced by this archetypal thing mm-hmm. that a lot of times you're not really even fully aware of that it has this kind of weird impact on who you are and there's something i think like in the way he talks about this and i felt this with this trickster thing there's something a little intoxicating about them they're so strong and they're so um yeah i think it has to be intoxicating i don't know if there's a better word for that <clears throat> they're so intoxicating that they they're like they're delightful <laughs> to feel they feel so good because there's so much power in them that's right. the, they're powerful and um and it was it was something where i like recognized this and i was like oh holy shit this is young stuff oh god damn that guy was right about this which i hadn't i mean i had thought about him off and on but i think that was the part where i realized like oh this is what he's talking about and as we often say when you get something experientially then you really know it Right. So, you know, we got the shower curtain of wisdom in my place across the hall over here where I have quotes from right. different people. And Jung has one there, which is just the classic. Until you recognize the unconscious, it will dominate your life and you will call it fate. But it's hmm. because you're so seized by this this stuff that you just act these things out. And and you're you're not getting space for your own. He uses the phrase individuation or something like that. This right. idea, like, you have to get your own individual identity. You have to react, you have to interact with the archetypal world because it's so rich and so meaningful that if you don't have connection to it all, your life will feel kind of dry or flat or something. Sure. But at the same time, you can't be so dominated by them that they like run away with the show. Right. That wouldn't be good either. So because that's my that's my tale of like really coming to recognize this in myself. And I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. I get this like experientially, experientially, I get this from the inside. And mm. I can even see like, okay, this could be trouble. <clears throat> there's too much of this you know so anyways that's my that's my story i know you got something similar you want to share so we're just talking about just you know different um mm, archetypes right 
Uh-huh. And so I, you know, I'll just give, you know, one that probably stuck with me still, still definitely does. Um, and that's, that's the magician. Oh, you're kind of stealing my shit, but go ahead and do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? I mean, that's yeah. what I was going to pick. You did, you did, the, you did my <laughs> no, other one in that way. Like I was going to talk about, but we'll, we'll double back on it, but go ahead. Yeah. Bring it down. Yeah. Cause I got some other stuff to say about it. Yeah. So the, the magician is, is a, is an interesting one. And, and much like how you were talking about with the, the, the jester or the joker or, you know, something the trickster, the trickster, you know, there is a power to it. And the magician also has power, but I think in a way, the, 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 Magician, I think it's more so, at least in my understanding of it, is more associated with asserting its will. You know, learning uh, how to learning the learning the universe, learning how to manipulate things or and then and then asserting its will or desire on, you know, on reality, you know, trying to make things come come true. And true to myself, as Eric, you know, as you know probably better than most people, the the kind of shadow side of that is like the fear of unintended consequences. You know, so like a responsible magician is aware that like when you start to um, implement your 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 tricks, <laughs> you know, on the universe that sometimes the ball gets rolling and once it's rolling, it's going to go, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that's something that, you know, I, I'm I've been aware of. And I think it's also been part of why I have studied the things that I've studied this shamanism, especially um, and which is um you know, I, I think a, a big part of, you know, my own spiritual growth, you know, and I think even on a deeper level, like all of these things that, that you know, Carl Jung is talking about, archetypal, you know, archetypal are, are very shamanic in essence. They're all caricatures of energies, you know, and maybe the energies are caricatures of, a, of beings who re- reside behind those faces, who reside behind those energies, you know. Or the, uh, or the beings are personifications of the energies. There you go. Play that card, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if you can kind of look at yourself and see some attributes that you have, it, it it's worth the look. It's worth the look and you can just, you know, for listeners, you could certainly look up like the 12 main archetypes of Jung and then, you know, just find a web page, pull it up and, and see which one kind of one or ones. Usually there's a couple that will, you know, kind of stick out and and do a little research dive. Like it, it's it's worth the, the 10, 15 minutes that you'll spend on it to kind of see what sticks out. And, and I think there's always something to be learned, actually, even if you don't necessarily agree on it. It's fun to see, at least for me, it's fun to see aspects of my personality that I know are inherently quote unquote me, which might lead us into a different discussion, that are part of something else that someone has already determined are parts of quote unquote me. You know what I'm saying? Like <laughs> collective unconscious part of me that's already kind of hanging around that like yes. oh, very personal to me. And you're like, well, no, I guess it's not. I guess not. I didn't think like it was hitting me as I was thinking about this one before we we did it today. I usually do like a little mental prep work or sometimes I'll write some stuff down. And, and um, so what got me was this inflation thing, you know, cause I knew I was going to talk about this trickster deal. And so it's not always good. They're not good or bad on some level, right? One way of looking at it, they're not good or bad. It depends on how you behave with them, how you right. interact with them, whether or not you can get an individual sort of take on them and an individual relationship with them that is like healthy, you know, because they are part of who you are. Jung says, if you're going to buy in on the Jung thing, they're part of like the whole construction of what's in all of us. So they're not going anywhere. Right. <laughs> you know, you can't like, okay, I don't want you anymore. Bye. And you just jettison the whole thing. He's going to say that that's, that's not possible. Mm. We could debate. But, you know, the idea is he feels like that's not really what's going to happen. So they're going to be there. So you have to have a, a good relationship with them. Mm. But it opens up the point that they're not necessarily always healthy then too, mm. right? You can have issues right. with them or they can have negative aspects of them. And I was yeah. trying to think about this kind of deep. So I wanted to reference like Carol Pearson. Okay. Who has this book called The Hero Within. And I usually use this when I try to like teach classes about Jung and stuff in my grad school teaching just to kind of illustrate the point, because she says something really special about the magician archetype, which is that it's kind of one of the more intrinsically healthy ones. Oh, good. So I'm glad that I chose that one. Yay, I did good. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm healthy. Mm. (laughs) 
So, um, but she says that there's a process of like kind of getting to recognizing that archetype or something. Mm. And I think the slant she has on it is something like you can interact with the world in a creative, meaningful, and sometimes even playful way. So there's probably a gateway from a trickster to a magician or something. Oh, yeah. Right. There's a playfulness to it. You can think of like Dumbledore's character, especially like if you watch the first couple of movies, he really plays it well, I think. You know, the fact that Dumbledore has like a, always like a little twinkle in his eye or something like that, especially in those first few movies. Is it Richard Harris? Is that the actor? I can't remember. But anyways, he have you seen those movies, Daniel? Was that Harry Potter? The Harry Potter movies? Mm-mm. No, you're not into it. Not into it. That's funny. So you'll get like a good magician. You say magician, you haven't seen a single Harry Potter movie. Oh, the irony. But anyways, this there's character named Dumbledore to explain this. <laughs> And so he's kind of the wise old wizard. He's kind of like the Merlin. Mm, okay. You know, and um, so, you know, Merlin, when you he's see like Merlin, He's like Gandalf in Harry Potter, right? I think Gandalf is is um, is not as playful, I don't think. No, but I mean, in terms of... Uh, but like, yeah, similar vibe. Yeah, yeah. Similar vibe. So, but, you know, like, there's a playfulness to the character. So the, the magician can work... Can can kind of like be creative in the world, can do stuff in the world, can see the world in a somewhat realistic way. All of its like mundane aspects, but all of its transcendent aspects can like bridge those worlds, right? Mm-hmm. As above, so below. Mm. But can do it in a creative, playful, and healthy way. And shit may not always work out for Merlin, but he's still gonna like bounce back again and like you know try again. <laughs> Merlin doesn't give up. You know, the magician doesn't give up. And the magician mm-hmm. goes, okay, let me go back and I'll rework my spells again, see if I can get a better better take on it. So it's a kind of a healthy one. Mm. But the weird thing, she, the interesting thing she does in the book is she goes through and says, yeah, there's ways in which this can be unhealthy. So I thought I'd throw out a few of the ones that are like not as healthy, you know, and those are kind of thought provoking too. And we might all have piece of these pieces of these in us. So, yeah. So she uh, she talks about one called The Innocent. And she says those those are in the stories where, you know, the character has like a naively optimistic point of view and thinks that the world is sort of like a very like sugar-coated place where everything's going to turn out like super nice and and whatever. As long as they're just like a good person, everything's going to work out for them, which is just not true. That's like very naive, right? Mm. So I'll give an example of a friend of mine. Maybe this will like, uh, you can think of somebody too, Daniel, I don't know. But like I had this friend of mine I've, I've known him since grade school. We haven't been in contact with a, for a bit. And there's a real reason for it, which I guess I'll get to. But so he was just like a good Catholic kid, you know? And he had this idea that as long as he was just like a good Catholic boy, everything would turn out right. And when he got to be an adult, some things turned out right. But as is inevitable, some things like didn't. Mm. And one of the major things that didn't turn out right was that he had a real deep thing about wanting to have his own kids. Like it was really deep for him, you know? And I've known people who wanted to have their own kids, men and women. Um, but from the guys that I've known, he was deeper in this than most of the dudes that I've met. Like he really wanted to be a dad, like really badly, you know? And so, you know, he married this lady who had already been in a previous marriage, had a child from that marriage. And he was such a good Catholic, he even got like the whole marriage, like annulled officially, you know, to kind of like make it all good, (laughs) you know, like by Catholic rules and all that. And he thought everything was going to work out like super great. That again was his underlying philosophy. As long as I was good and like followed the rules, everything would turn out well. I remember when I was going Buddhist because we both were raised Catholic and he got me, we were we were out together on like a little winter vacation thing. You know, we were there, I think with our girlfriends at the time, maybe he was single at the time. Yeah. But I was there with somebody and we were like cross country skiing and bullshitting around drinking a little bit and whatever. And he said, well, as long as I guess you're going Buddhist. Well, I don't know what I think about that, but here, here's a book. And he's a sweet guy. He gave me a book of like Buddhist rules, <laughs> the Dhammapada. Here's the rules of Buddhism. So I guess as long as you follow the rules, it'll probably work out. Okay. So, you know, I guess it'll be all right. And he was being sincere, you know, so that was when we were younger. But by the, by, by the time we got to be older, uh, you know, he had married this lady and she probably just didn't want to have another kid, to be honest. Like, she just wasn't that into, like, doing that. And eventually when they started to try, you know, she was older than him. 
and it got to be difficult for her to get pregnant and eventually she just didn't so he just never got to be a dad of his own kids he could be a dad to her son you know who was already a little bit older so he never got to be like he never got to live this father thing which is probably a father archetype deal in him anyways mm -hmm. we can talk about i suppose uh too but you know so this never happened for him and i remembered having conversations with him where he was in so much pain you know and part of the pain when i was thinking about it as like a psych person and someone who had already kind of like bought into the young thing i was like oh he's having this pain that's like his whole archetypal way of approaching life like didn't work mm. right and it was like breaking his heart and we had deep conversations and i remember at one point and I was going to work to work with patients, but I would be talking to him on the car on the way in. Old friend, I love him. You know, he's he's a good good person, and um, and he was so mad. And I remember at one point he was just like, he was like, "I'm so mad at God. I'm like so mad," you know, because he was like, "I did everything I was supposed to do. I did everything that I was taught was going to work out, and it didn't." And I was like, you know, part of me was like, "Well, that's a naive way of thinking about." religion and christianity have you ever heard of a thing called the book of job like shit doesn't work out shit didn't work out for jesus <laughs> you know why would it work out for you if you followed this but i think jung's point would be something like that's what happens when you have this innocent archetype it just seizes mm. you know and you think as long as i just do as long as i'm just a nice person and follow the rules and do the nice things life will naturally reward me and i've actually talked to a number of people like that mm. you know who have that thing even sometimes in like fertility cases you'll be talking with people and they'll be like i'm a good person i've done all good things why won't the universe do this for me you know or god or or whoever and you're like well that's just not how reality works mm. you know and it's it's a naive archetype and so then therefore i guess the point that carol pearson is trying to make based on jung would be it's kind of dangerous because mm. then like when it falls through then the person has this bitterness right so what do you think that story makes sense to you? Yeah. Well, we, you know, Eric, we talk about like faith because a lot of that is what the innocent is kind of has as it's, I don't know what you want to call it, talent, if you will. It's characteristics. It's feature, sure. Right. Mm -hmm. That faith is a big part of it. And faith is a very powerful tool. Faith is a very powerful characteristic. Yeah, you're already you're already framing it a little bit more positive than I was. So, <laughs> right, you said talent, and I went, nah, that yeah, okay, you know, mm -hmm. and so like you can have faith, and that could lead you through, um, you know, as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do the Coolio lines, but you know, <laughs> Coolio version. No, uh, what's that song? Gangster's Paradise, you know. Oh, is it in Gangster's Paradise? I, yeah, I for sure. Classic hip hop song. Rest in peace, Julio. Oh, yeah. Anyways, yeah. um, you know, faith is is the light that guides you via the darkness, you know. Uh -huh. And so having that, I think, is a powerful tool. But the other side of that is that it's on some level, and I'm not I'm not dissing anyone's faith in particular, but it's and I'm looking at a light bulb here next to me. It's kind of like a bug being attracted to the light and then getting burnt up as it goes and gets closer towards it. You know, like you do have your, your quote unquote, God given ability, you know, and I'm not saying God in air quotes, I'm saying your God given ability in air quotes, because I think everybody has it. No, it wasn't bestowed upon anybody. It's just bestowed upon everybody, but whatever. In order to, to judge for yourself, what is going to be beneficial for you and not beneficial for you and make those choices. And I think that having faith oftentimes gets bestowed upon an external mediator, external mediary, you know, and, and therefore it, it disempowers the individual to have faith in their own decisions. Even if in the moment they might seem incorrect, you still have to have faith that you are guided by your own sort of, whether you want to call it inner divinity, internal compass, uh, consciousness, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. You know, Jiminy Cricket, right? Uh huh. Um, that you have, you can also have faith in that. And I feel like that in you know, with this archetype, the innocent, and just in general with that kind of story, that people relinquish that part, you know, and look to the rules to externally dictate their how they live without ever taking a bunch of like 
responsibility for saying this doesn't feel right, but it's against the rule. I'm now in a dilemma. So on one hand, I could just follow the rule and let my own voice go, fade away and feel like I did the I did the right thing, air quote, right? Or I could say, you know what? I, I'm living not in resonance, not in harmony with myself based on this decision because of how it puts me up against this rule. And I'm not talking about like, you know, murder versus not murder. I'm just saying general, you know, your own life decisions that you have to reconcile with that. And that might be outside of the, what we'd see as like an external faith, but it might be something that's more internally driven. So to your point, being innocent in this way is a detriment, but there's also some aspects of having a strong faith that, that could be positive, you know? If I look at it from what I was trying to talk about earlier, you know, why did this trickster thing came, come out so strong? Because this friend and I, a friend of mine and I had similar upbringings in some ways. You mean innocent, not trickster? Uh, I meant to say the trickster one came up for me. Oh, for you. Why did I respond with a trickster? I responded yeah. with a trickster because I was like, I got to figure out how to get around these rules. Sure. And that's what a trickster does. It figures out like, okay, how do I squirm yeah. between the rules? And, you know, I think from a trickster archetypal point, that's an important archetype. Jung would get it because it's at least as far as European culture goes and probably cultural overall, there's all these rules and the people find them repressive and then people want to act out. Right. So the trickster archetype helps you figure out how to like squirm between those cracks. Yeah. You learn how to do that, right? Where for my friend, I get what you're saying, but I can't get it. You know, and this is one of these things, you know, you can take different slants on this, obviously. But for me, I think the thing was, there was this idea in him that as long as I just kind of was nice and did these things, the universe would like just reward me automatically or something just because of my general niceness and like being a good Catholic person <laughs> following those catholic credos and that's just not how shit works that's just not true mm. you know what i mean mm. or maybe you don't feel that way i don't know it's interesting no no i do and and you know just so what we're touching I don't, think, I don't think the catholic teachers are saying that no no you know and, I mean? but he walked away with that feeling about it you know right well and i think that this actually you know and they're all you know the main archetypes are kind of balanced with another with other ones you know so i feel like the the innocent one is is sort of at the opposite end of the rebel. Yeah, maybe that's true. Mm -hmm. You know, and that the yeah. the rebel, which is exactly what it sounds like. You know, going against the rules. Um, you know, looking to kind of like break down walls. Not you know, not just accept. Usually, not, some way where there's a destructive aspect to that, probably for the person. Yeah, yeah. Right? They're generally speaking, probably going to get crushed in the end or something. But they have the the good feeling of revolting against the thing that they find wrong. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. Is, these are your cowboys type, you know? Season. Yeah. Like, well, that's where you pull away from everything and you're like, give everything the finger and just ride off onto the sunset or something. Right. 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 Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. yeah so, you know, yeah. I mean, every, every, I mean, everybody's got a little bit of everything at certain points, you know, I think you kind of yeah. roll through the, the gamut. I think it gets to this young idea of like inflation. Like he was like taken over by this archetype is the mm. way I'm like, trying to like present the case. Got it. We're doing it as a case study. This thing was like so, so much a part of him that it kind of like, it, it's intoxicating again, right? Mm -hmm. So if it's intoxicating, he felt like, oh, you know, this felt good to him. But it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't healthy and real after a certain point. Let me give a couple other ones from her and you can see what you think. You know what I mean? Okay. But then she, uh, she talks about the orphan. And this is the idea of the person like from the old, like Charles Dickens, Oliver Twist stories. I'm a, I'm a needy person and I need external people to, you know, take care of me. And then my rich uncle will come along and pull me out of my poverty or some other figure will appear in my life that will act as sort of like my savior figure and pull me out of my duress, something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And so the, I think it's like, kind of like, defined by this idea of neediness and then probably even some idea of like traumatic experience or something. Right. But if the orphan thinks, takes somebody over, then I think the idea is that that person ends up in this space of um, always feeling, yeah, that there's some external thing that's going to solve their problems. And there's a, there's a neediness aspect to it. And that's obviously then not healthy. Right. Right. But it's powerful. I mean, I certainly feel like I've met people in my life who are like this. Mm. Someone will swoop in, you know, 
maybe there'll be like a relationship and then the significant other person will sweep in and solve my problems for me or something. Hmm. And that shit doesn't work out. And it tends to like probably create even like dependent personality disorder kind of tendencies and stuff like that. Cause you're waiting for some external force or person to step in and like solve your stuff. I mean, isn't that, you know, but that's, that's like the savior complex. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's the same. And we talked about that. We talked about that last week and we've talked about it before. Yeah, Even the politics realm, right. Yeah. Like some person to step in and solve stuff. Mm-hmm. I feel like that happens like, you know, an individual level with patients. I certainly feel like I've seen patients who are like, absolutely all of this thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I so think I, though, the thrall part, that's the problem, right? Say again. It's the thrall. The fact that it inflates and takes over someone. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's the negative the aspect. That's but the if, you know, so there was two things I, I told you I wanted to I wanted to share with you. Oh, um, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what I said, I'd find a way to weave them in. So here here's one of them. Um, so away, over the last Tantra means to weave. <laughs> that's right. The tantric yeah, yeah. view. Um, over the last like week and a half, I, there's been a theme that's been coming up in my meditations and my journeys and stuff like this that has um basically it's it's sort of prompting me to ask for help you know to to, and and it's not just an ask for help like will you help me it's a yielding actually and, and, and allowing to receive on some level which and again, because it's it literally every day unfolds a little bit more, even though I was not going in and I, and I don't go into my meditations looking to learn anything in particular. Okay. And yet in the, you know, like once it comes in, it's like, whew. and then this morning I was like, oh, I, you know, I always, you know, ask for my guides and bodhisattvas or whomever to help me assist me in my practice and in my day and whatever, um, as a means of gratitude, you know? Mm-hmm. And the first thing, that as soon as I closed my eyes, took a couple of deep breaths, the first thing that came was like asking for help is a release of control. And that oh. was just right. That just, that struck deep. I was like, Oh wow. Okay. And so in a means of this kind of person who is looking to be taken care of, I can see that there, you know, on one hand there's a negative because it's disempowering on, on something, but on the other hand, there is also a great power in allowing for something else to kind of come through and, and lift you up to be inspiring in a sense. You know what I'm saying? So um, I told you I'd weave it in and, and there it is. <laughs> I try to think what I think. So for you, you're kind of framing that like, okay, this is good. I give up control and allow a process to unfold without trying to control it. Is that the way you're kind of framing it? Yes, but it's even one one step further. I'm asking for help. But I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm saying like, I don't say, please help me or please, whatever I say, will you? Mm-hmm. And therefore I leave the response open because that's yeah. the only way to ask a question. Really? <laughs> it's just, you can't, you can't like put a demand out, like, right. Hey, do this. So you're going to help me, right? Lot. Do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. that's not how it worked. Cause I was, you know, again, in, in a, in a meditation space and I saw some beings or something, I don't know what you want to, whoever you want to call them. And, and I said, okay, uh, would you please, you know, uh, I would like for this to happen. Would you please help me? And the answer was no. Oh, and I was like, okay. oh, well that's okay. And then I said immediately, that's fair. That's fair. You Were can they just like, it's a bad idea for us to help you with this. No, or- the answer, the answer was no. They were like that. This is not how you ask how do you ask how do you you have to ask from a place of openness a place from gratitude and a place that like you can also get the answer can be no and so because i've been fortunate enough to have so much help in that in that arena for so long i expect it not because i have expectations but because i've been conditioned that way because it's been so open. And now the way in which I, when I request, you know, when I do refuge or when I do these things, you know, that I ask and simultaneously, like I said, it's been weaving together. I'm I studying a little bit more Zen kind of views on things. I was reading about um, offering the incense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Which is, you know, a way, I mean, you, 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 you talk about that for a second, Eric, cause you can explain it better than I can. I've only read oh, it. You do, you do your version of it and then I'll like, okay. So basically like at the beginning of a practice, 
you know, you will sort of offer incense to, uh, you know, some enlightened essence in the universe as a means uh, of, you know, showing humbleness or gratitude or something else like this. It's also uh, a way to kind of connect with the moment and that it has a it has an aroma and that aroma is touching a kind of like an old, we're not going to say an older part of your brain, but a, a sensory part of yourself. And that at this moment, even though it's a small token, it's incense, you know, it's probably not even the whole stick. It's just a little piece. <laughs> but if you can use that ritual as a means to like, not lower yourself, but humble yourself and offer something that has a sense uh, effect attached to it, that you can be in a way open to possibility from re to receiving in this way. And so I'm reading all I'm reading this as I'm going through all this at the same time, and it's sort of reinforcing itself. So I, I wanted to bring that up, because as you're mentioning the the, you know, the kind of like savior complex thing, I can also see the the kind of like, aspect to it that that definitely can be empowering for people who think that that if they're not uh in charge of every step of the process that it won't be successful that that's also not real either that's a you know a false it's view probably in the end like always a magician move you know like probably though it's always like it's always like that in the end right okay i'm going to do a magical act i will offer this incense it's mm. funny because in the tantras they have like a hand mudra for it. It goes something like that. <laughs> yes, for the incense, right? Um, uh, amongst the other offerings that you make, if you offer candles, you kind of put your thumbs up like this or whatever. Mm. Uh, but you know they have that kind of thing, and and um, partially that can be offerings to things that you think maybe would be helpful, forces that would be helpful in the universe, mm -hmm. right? Uh, beings or forces that would be helpful in the universe. Sometimes you're making offerings just like, hey, let's like everybody should have incense everywhere <laughs> right you know everyone should have lights everyone should have food i'm doing the little mudras you know everyone should have the entire mandala of the world right so you know you kind of make an offering that's sort of like trying to be for everybody right mm -hmm. and in which case you're developing like bodhicitta ideas in your head as you're doing your practice or something right mm -hmm. this idea that you're working bodhicitta meaning like you're working like not only just for yourself you're doing that but you're also doing it to like be a force to help everybody right yeah yeah. So, um, and that's probably magic <laughs> in the end, right? That's a magical move and like things will respond or not respond. Right. But it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think this is one of the big questions and I don't know, this is probably a whole separate podcast episode because it's so deep, but like at what points are those things healthy and at what points are those things unhealthy? Sure. Like what's the cutoffs there? Cause it's quite interesting. Right. Cause you say, well, my friend's attitude then would like, well, that was good. He was trying to offer, you know, uh, you know, the service of his life and a good cause he expected, but he expected like something to come back in a way that wasn't real. You know, you can't have that. That's probably just not how the universe works. You know, it's not a realistic way of looking at things. And I think with the orphan one, <clears throat> I think the idea is usually you're turning to like other people, you know, and whatever, and you're trying to get like those other people to solve your problems, but that usually doesn't work either. Does it? Mm -mm. Because if you're a really needy person, you're probably going to attract other people who will probably try to use your neediness against you, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're dependent upon other people, as opposed to like, I guess, trying to connect to God or the Tao or something, right? Mm -hmm. Just like a kind of a different move. But you still come from a point of view of like, okay, I'm going to seek assistance and help. I get what you're saying. I mean, there's nothing that's good, right? Mm -hmm. that's obviously a spiritually powerful thing to do. And, uh, I know it's interesting. It took me a little bit to kind of get used to that kind of idea. Probably. I probably got it with my teacher from China, Master Shengli Wang, because he would kind of make a big deal about that. Mm. Open yourself up to the good energy of the universe and let it like flow through you and don't try to control it as much and stuff like that. That was sort of more his attitude towards things. And so I spent some years doing those kinds of practices and I was like, yeah, there's something good in that. Right. Yeah. And a lot of it has to do with like, okay, I'm going to let go of my control of this situation and allow where this energy goes to go something like that does that yeah. make sense yeah yeah but the orphan part's a problem because then like you're somehow going to like throw yourself at the mercy of other people and they may or may not like be good to you back right, right. and you're coming from a position of weakness and neediness and dependency okay i'll throw out a couple of other ones they yeah. kind of go together in my mind the warrior and the martyr yes these are two kinds of like, I guess, things that seem similar to me, 
if you're a warrior, you're always fighting for causes and you're like captured by that, you know, and you're constantly fighting and struggling for these causes. And you can't like, you can't turn it off or something. And it's very intoxicating, I guess, is the idea. Yeah. And I feel like I've known multiple people in my life who are like that. And it's very close to being a martyr because then you're going to self-sacrifice in these things. Right. Mm. So if you're fighting more, I guess you're more the warrior type person. If you're like martyring yourself, sacrificing over and over and over again, then you're martyring. And I think the point that Carol Pearson's trying to make in this book, The Hero Within, is that like, <clears throat> these are not healthy ways of interacting with the world either. You know, mm. like I think with the warrior one, I think like I've known, like you obviously you can be actually a soldier in the military doing this. And you would speak to that more than I would be able to speak to that. I've never been that thing. But I do feel like like in America, like a lot of people kind of do this over like social causes. Sure. Where I've watched people get so absorbed in fighting like the social cause that it like seizes their whole personality. Yeah. And you get to the unhealthy aspect of that. Like you might be fighting for like good causes, but you get so absorbed in this that you lose all like all boundary of like like uh the right way even to handle the situation you don't even do it well because you're so seized by the idea of fighting all the time you know mm -hmm. i've had like i don't know this may be just a i'd be curious to people in other cultures <laughs> but i've had arguments with people where you're like i agree with you on 96 percent of whatever cause you're fighting for but you're like attacking me over the other four <laughs> percent yeah and I think that's what's happening a lot in our culture. A lot of people yeah, are so yeah. absorbed by these warrior martyr things that they're just like, they're under the thrall of it. And they just fight. And yeah, I, I've had this experience. Have you had the same thing where you're like literally talking with someone like, I oh, agree yeah. with you. <laughs> and you're still fighting with me over this one little tiny part that you don't like. Crazy. Yeah, I think um, that's kind of like, but well, I, I don't know. I don't know which um archetype it is but the one that i know it as it's called the everyman uh-huh and that's kind of like the desire for that one is for people to be connected you know oh i see to be to be part of a group and the issue is that like the groups be, because of how fragmented things are the groups become smaller and smaller and even though they're totally parallel actually with within the sub subset of groups right so we could call you know left wing or right wing what whatever wing you want they're running parallel woke or anti-woke or whatever it is whatever right? the, yeah whatever it is yeah but that like the ones that are your, people who you're going to be associated with are probably going to be closely aligned to what you are but it be, because still of how algorithms work and how we spend so much time on our devices and how they're sort of cured to our tastes and things like this, we see the internet very different. We see then therefore reality very different and we hear things differently. And therefore those who fit with us per almost perfectly, we sort of amalgamate over towards them. And then those who are parallel to us, but still very close can almost be seen as like an enemy or a, a friend who's not so close, they're kind of like, you know what I'm saying? Like frenemy. <laughs> yeah, frenemy. And you're like, no, it's 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 not, we're not frenemies. It's the fact that like that diagram of our overarching beliefs are like it, are, in the 90 percentile. Correct. <laughs> but the inability of somebody to be flexible, you know, and 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 not feel like they're betraying that group, which now is their own identity. Yeah, yeah it feels like they are betraying an aspect of themselves or then they will project it upon you and say, Oh no, you don't understand. You're not understanding this. And, you know, for conversational purposes, okay, no problem. But for actual policy purposes, no one's ever really happy. That's not how cooperation works. Everybody's slightly disappointed, but we shake hands and move on and, and, and live the next day and hope society sort of gets better as we continue to agree. There's a thing in the United States called bread tube, which Ooh, might bread be tube. a cringy little thing. It's not where you learn how to make like nice baguettes and things. Ah, that's unfortunate. I was hoping for like a gluten-free <laughs> option. So it's it's more like a way of talking about kind of liberal YouTube social media online presences or something, but on the left, you know? Oh, I would have preferred the, granola tube. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you get a bunch of hippies. Okay. Singing Grateful Dead songs. 
which could be more entertaining to be honest yeah, one of the stereotypes of bread tube which is really funny if you pay any attention to it at all in any to any extent is they're constantly just fighting each other <laughs> <laughs> the majority of the videos are like people attacking one another in this small little set it's not necessarily that small it's millions of people who might be watching these videos you know but like uh it's just like constant clashing amongst these people who probably have an overlap right at least the 80 percentile range yeah what they think so what would jung say he would say well okay what what the fuck is going on here and part of it's because people want to like have causes mm. and they want to fight for causes and it's intoxicating and that that warrior feeling you know whether you're actually charging physically into a battle or whether you feel like i'm just going to send a really pointed text about this or not text but like a little post on twitter or whatever you know people feel like they're fighting over something right I, like i find this archetype so weird because uh, certainly the way it works a lot now is it's people who are kind of like really removed from the shit that they're fighting over mm. you know like you're like this doesn't i was talking to with a student about this on campus and we we're just talking about the way people get so upset especially you know lgbtq plus stuff people are like all up in arms and you realize that like you don't even know any gay people or trans people not even around you. You have nothing to do with this. You know, like what's happening? Why are people doing that? And like I think Jung's point would be it's an archetype that seizes and you feel like you're part of some struggle for something that's on the right, not right politically, but like just or something, you know, and you're fighting for it, fighting for it, fighting for it. And you won't compromise a fucking bit, right? Because why would you compromise on that point? Because what your cause is just or something and it seizes right. control of you. And you can't turn it off and you're inflated, but it's intoxicating. That's the problem with these fuckers. They're intoxicating, right? Right. Yeah. So that one, and I guess the other one would be kind of like the martyry one. And then that one, you're self-sacrificing and self-sacrificing and self-sacrificing. Right. It was weird because I like was listening to, there's this bullshit online personality person named Jordan Peterson, if you don't know who he is. <laughs> And uh, so he has a Jungian kind of twist to some of the things he talks about. But he's also a little bit of like a, what, how would you describe him? Right-wing political figure yeah. two or something? Yeah. But, well, and he's a, he's a psychologist. And then, you know, presumably he's helped people and I don't want to diss his helping of people. I'm more like kind of talking about the way he presents himself. In the, in the political sphere and in the social sphere, he's kind of like a little bit of a con artist or something, you know, but but, you know, part of what he, he I remember, and I think we talked about in the podcast, his solution for people's suffering was that they should just martyr themselves. Yeah. And so he was just saying like, okay, just devote yourself to your family and your work and, you know, and then just martyr yourself for it, knowing that it's not going to turn out that great. So you're not an innocent. You're not an orphan. You know, you're not under that archetype. You're not a warrior fighting no. over causes. You're just going to like martyr yourself. <laughs> And so, you know, martyr yourself for your work, 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 and then martyr yourself for your family. So, you know, take on the attitude, like, like I'm just like going to martyr myself for my kids, which I think is totally fucked up because then what are you teaching your kids that your kids are going to martyr themselves for their kids? And the whole thing is bullshit. I don't like that attitude at all. So I think th this is a nasty archetype to my sense of things. Mm -hmm. And I think to Carol Pearson too, she's saying like, this is just this self-sacrificing thing that just drives people forward. And all they do is just martyr and martyr and martyr and martyr. What do you think about that one? Yeah, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it either. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere. It just makes miserable, unhealthy people. Yeah. Yeah. And you're never, you never break out of it or something. There's no outdoor to it. You just are keep doing that. And I definitely, do you feel like you know people like that? I certainly feel like I know people like that. Oh yeah, for sure. They martyr themselves for their families. They martyr themselves for the work. They martyr themselves and they're just constantly doing this thing. And I guess the point of intoxication is that there's something intoxicating about doing that. Right. Like, it feels good. And then and maybe in the Jordan Peterson thing, maybe that helps some people. I don't know. Maybe it helps some people bust out of some negative. I, I, I think he is. I don't think it's a solution. I think he is, you know, giving band-aids to wounded people. Yes. You know, that but. It might be like a, a short-term like a short-term solution or something. It's not a long-term solution. It's a thing you can say, okay, this helps you get from point A to point B, but then, you know, you're actually, I think not, not to pat myself on the back, but that's a, that's a good way of putting it. If I could say it again, you know, say it again, giving band-aids to wounded people, which is, you know, which is 
good in a sense, because if you need a Band-Aid to cover your wound up, that's fine. But if the wounds are ones that don't close easily or that continue to re reappear, then the Band-Aid is not going to cover it. A Band-Aid is not going to help you heal long term, actually. Well, if you have a diabetic sore and we just put a Band-Aid on it and we never fix your pancreas, then this ain't then going nowhere. There, yeah, you're, you ain't yeah. going nowhere. So exactly. There's someplace else and we'll have to put another Band-Aid on it or something. Correct. Right. And so yeah. like you feel as if you're getting some deep psychological advice or even insight into the ways of, of a better being, right? Better living. But in in a in a in a reality that like this information is not hidden, right? Psychology is not hidden. You can study it. That that is just that's one way of of giving again band-aids to somebody who's got an open wound and not necessarily uh it's not teaching people how to make salves from plants themselves so that they can you yeah, know nothing, well yeah i mean i think the thing is like there's some feeling of empowerment in it because you're not like you're willingly taking on the role of what you're doing so you're right. not you know so i think that's mostly the point of empowerment yeah it probably does help some people and i'm like, sure in a christian culture which is dominantly is there's probably some people who will that will help them so yeah. but i mean like nah and nah. that's the point she's making in the book like nah, it's not gonna it's gonna it has a it has an end point after a certain point and it doesn't go anywhere else there's no place else to take it right yeah okay right. briefly again i guess before do you have to bounce or no what's your yeah time? about about three four minutes all right let's let's introduce the next one because we gotta get to the the lovey sexy part of this <laughs> So the big ones are going to be anima and animus, which I guess we'll talk about like in, you know, in our lead into next week, as we wrap our young stuff up, we're probably getting to the yeah. end of this. Now we're talking about the archetypes, yeah. but you know, the anima is the inner feminine and the animus is the inner masculine. And I think his idea goes to something like, it depends on how people frame it, but if you're uh, a woman in this life or you identify as being a woman whatever that means to you, right? Because we're asking all kinds of questions what that means in our culture now. But if you if you identify with that as your own personal identity, then the anima is going to influence how you think about femininity within yourself, right? If you're in a male body in this life, then you know what you think about the archetype of the animus is going to have an impact on this. And there's all kinds of different ranges of what this could mean, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that one we got to unpack because there's a lot in that to understand yeah. a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. That'll be the lead into like next week to get this. Whoever you're attracted to, right? Then Jung is going to say something like your anima is powerfully activated by the people that you're attracted to. If okay. you're attracted to women, if you're attracted to men, then this anima ar animus archetype is really important for you because it has a lot to do with how you feel, passion, love, sexuality, all these different kinds of feelings are going to be tapped into this archetype inside yourself. And this is really important to get like what he thinks about relationship love and why it's so powerful you know so anyways i think that's maybe like a stopping point what do you think yeah i think that's perfect yeah okay cool so we we got we know where we're starting on this and then we'll wrap up Jungy stuff but this is like getting to the crux of the issue in terms of like love yeah and relationship and i guess my job for the upcoming weeks is to read Jung and love <laughs> and see what i think and i'll, I'll let everybody know well Daniel is, Daniel is jotting down his his notes on all of this, right? Yeah. yeah. All right, cool. So you want to Sweet. do the outro, I guess. Right? Yeah, we'll yeah. do it. Well, Eric, as always, my friend, thank you so much for you, doing our doing our works here together. I appreciate it. It's always fun, always worthwhile, always yeah. uh, educational and entertaining. Yeah, you never know where this shit's going to go. No. Yeah, so it's good. <laughs> yeah, it is good. Yeah. Yeah. That's our, that's our, 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 uh, our that's shared tagline. Yeah, we never know where this shit's going to go. No way. Sure. That's that's right. also shamanic as fuck. Shamanic as fuck. Um, and to our audience, I forgot. Say again. Was, you said something earlier. What was it? Oh, uh, Jung never gets old. Oh, that's yeah. right. <laughs> yes, that's right. That one's good. I like that. Um, anyways, well, you know, to our audience, thank you so much. Um, you know, feel free to hit us up. Uh, I have been a little bit lax on putting YouTube videos up, but I'm gonna try and and pop those out. Uh, here in the next week or so. So leave us a comment in the YouTube. If you're watching, if you're listening, you can leave a, a comment in the uh, 
you know, on the Apple podcast, because about half our, our audience listens to us through Apple. So thank you for listening via that venue. Or if you want, you can hit us up at ginandtantra at gmail.com. That's ginandtantra at gmail.com. Or leave a, you know, like or comment in the Instagram, Gin and Tantra. And if you know us personally, then hit us up on Facebook. Um, I am Daniel Domalekny and Eric is Eric Baker. So you can, you know, leave us a message or, you know, whatever, send an emoji or, you know, talk shit, whatever you want. It's fine. You know, we take all of the, all of the love and everything else associated with it because it's energy and we're magicians. So we transform it into balloons <laughs> and doves. Abracadabra. Uh -huh. That's right. Put um, that shit and emoji and I turn it into a nice, smiley, sunny face. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, and for Eric, this is Daniel. We'll catch y'all on the next one. Peace. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. I want you to get together. I want you to get together.